Welcome to the Anifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Anifis Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my friend, colleague, official agitator, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. So we're laughing just because we've been having some banter before the call, but I'm looking forward to this because today we are going to talk about a subject that does not get nearly enough airtime, and that is commissioning lighting systems, as well as many other things. But how many people talk about that? In my experience, I have to force that conversation into the table. So this is going to be interesting for me. Yes. And today's guest is a licensed professional engineer in mechanical engineering. And what makes her unique to us is her additional skills and knowledge in lighting and commissioning. She is a certified commissioning professional and a certified lighting controls acceptance test technician. That's a mouthful in the state of California. She applies all of these uh, skills and talents as a senior commissioning and MEP coordinator for DPR Construction. Welcome to the show, Lynn Gomes. Hey, how you doing? We're doing great. It's good to have you on. Thank you. Lynn, I was like jumping into our guest background. We could do a whole show on your bio. Like there's so <laughs> many, your knowledge base is so diverse. We could just take a channel and go down it and just look at all of it. But it's really, I guess, suffice to say that you've worked on some really cool projects with some really cool people. Both Adam and I love the fact that you've worked on some projects that used radiant heating and cooling, the Emporium for Wandar Explorium. I guess it is. Explore. How do you say that? Exploratorium? Yeah, just slow down a little bit. Exploratorium. <laughs> okay, so that, is that with Rumsey? Yeah, it was Rumsey at the time. Yeah. Yep. So and another, I only worked on the construction side of it. So Okay, but still a very cool project. Um, what? what we like about those projects is both, and the one the other one was the uh, Chatham Eco Center. Yeah. Really low entropy system, yeah. high exergy efficiency, really like poster projects for decarbonization. We love that. And then um, I just did a project which was precast radiant. So precast oh. slabs and the structure and the slabs assembled just like a giant tinker toy and Beautiful. radiant. So, nice. and we only broke two tubes <laughs> in the whole building That's in awesome. 60,000 square feet. It's wow. pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, maybe we could talk about that too. I mean, it sounds like already we're going to need to do a couple shows <laughs> with you. You were recognized by your peers for a whole bunch of different things. One of them was the top 20 women to look for, or women in HVAC to watch. We tend to agree with that assessment by, uh, I guess it was Engineered Systems Magazine. Yeah. Tell our audience, like, how did you get to be where you are? Oh, so it's a really great nuanced story. There's actually a bio in, I think there's a medium interview that came out a month ago or so. So they can go to that for the full bio. Really, I came from a father who had definite ideas for gender roles and working on the car with him was not part of it. <laughs> and yeah, that's the T. Yeah. And my mother remarried. My stepfather had different ideas. You know, for my 16th birthday, he gave me a toolkit. Actually, for my 18th birthday. And I cried because <laughs> he recognized who I was. And it's still, I mean, to have that recognition from him. And he was a father that he didn't have to be. I'm really lucky that way. 
You can see me getting all a little verklempt. And then, I mean, the real origin story was my mom gave me her car as my daily driver. And I, young, cocky, confident, I thought I could do a better job than the mechanic who was working on it. My stepfather helped me. And we eventually had to overhaul the transmission. And I put it back together and I turned, and this is an English MG. So, you know, uh, (laughs) turn the input shaft, the first motion shaft, it turns the leg gear, turns the output shaft. And watching all those gears mesh together, I mean, it was like angels sang overhead, you know, this heavenly light comes down, you know, that it could have been just the neighbor's leaf blower and the single bulb in the garage. But (laughs) that was it. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a mechanical engineer and I thought, okay, this is what it's going to do. I threw four tries to get into Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, but I did it and it was actually a problem on their end, but that's another story. (laughs) And I haven't looked back. I mean, I love mechanical engineering, but what I would really say is I love problem solving, right? And what is commissioning and construction and design, but problem solving? In addition, I had that girly girl growing up. So sewing was a big deal for me. And career aptitude tests in high school were so bogus. They said, oh, I should be a seamstress or an accountant. I didn't like math enough to be an engineer. Oh, I'm not kidding. This is, this is, wow. this is real. And so, you know, but you think about it. Sewing, you're taking a three-dimensional idea, putting it down into two dimensions. And using a machine to put it back into three dimensions, right? That's engineering. And it served me very well. It's applied engineering, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I love your background here in our interview. For those who are listening to the audio version of this, you really ought to watch the YouTube version because like, there's formulas and sketches and doodles and it looks like low calculation drawings. There's piping layouts. I love that. This is real life. This is we're solving problems every day out here in the field. Yeah, and yeah. just just so that the audience knows as well. So you know, Lynn is not just a desk jockey. She's out on a job site in a trailer right now with a real white ball behind, probably talking about change orders <laughs> and problems that need fixing. This is real life. This is not theoretical here, which is why I'm telling you now: applied engineering, best engineering. That's it. Period. My absolutely. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we've talked before on the show about, we talk to a lot of kids that are kids, young adults that are in university or colleges right now trying to figure out what they want to do with their <laughs> their lives. And when you think about those that have interest in the sciences and solving problems and continuous challenges every moment of the day, there is no other profession like it than engineering. You're not going to hear me disagree. Yeah. You wake up in the morning and your brain already has to start thinking. <laughs> In fact, many of us don't actually go to bed at night because we're thinking. We can't turn our brains off. Oh, actually, two nights ago, I was dreaming about inspecting our DOAS units uh, (laughs) for the controls that hadn't been installed in them. I'm not kidding. And that is not the first time it's happened on my project. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Engineers have a bit of isms. And that's a superpower. A tism's a superpower in engineering, right? The reason I particularly wanted to speak to you, Lynn, I mean, we've bumped into other, each other at conferences very briefly, but you've been on my radar for a, a while, and this is why. Lighting controls and commission lighting controls yep. is a very underrated but important thing. And what's even more interesting for you in particular, you're a mechanical engineer, 
who's yeah. wandered in, and all commissioning engineers arrive somewhere by accident, right? No one wakes up in the morning <laughs> and goes, you know, I want to be a True. commissioning guy. No True. one. Right? So you're a mechanical engineer. So if I'd have looked at you at graduation and said, oh, no, you're definitely going to be a lighting controls person, no one would have said that, right? So how do you wind up going from mechanical to essentially an electrical subdiscipline? One name, James Donson. Tell me more. James Donson and I worked at KW Engineering. He's a mechanical engineer by degree. He was doing energy audits at KW. And, you know, one of the things that's needed in an energy audit is to understand the lighting. Well, James dove. I mean, he just dove down the deep end. And I was like, oh, well, he's got this lighting, lighting skill, right? I could learn controls. Why not? And James gave me the confidence that this is something I could learn because I would listen to James and listen to him talk about like just these great nuances about lighting. And I was like, damn, he's a mechanical engineer. So, you know, if he could do it, I could do it. And I do. James is wonderful. I hope that you get to interview him one day. Yeah. I mean, you know, but it also shows the power of collegiality, right? Understanding a market and then taking something that you're maybe not super interested in on the surface, but once you like scratch that surface, there's going to be something fascinating that's going to just drive you down. Yeah. And, and so you go in through the deep end and, the, and you go and you learn it. And, and I would say that's the same for school and staying in school and staying in this career. I mean, why do you think I've done so many things? It's just so I could stay interested. <laughs> would you say, so do you spend most of your working days nowadays on lighting controls or you're doing other things as well? Oh, no. So my current role is an MEP coordinator. And right. really, I should call it MEP and friends. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's integrated, I'm working on it. I mean, right now, <laughs> on this current project, I have worked on 50, no, 20 different integration topics on this current project that I'm doing now. We have a cold room. How do we get that information from the cold room into the BMS, right? How do we get our air compressors talking to the BMS? How are we getting the lighting control system talking to the HVAC control system? And we're doing that when the HVAC system is hosted remotely in a campus data center, right? But the lighting control system is hosted locally in the building. I mean, huge, huge. This this comes on to one of my general theories of everything, which is everything is cross-discipline. Absolutely. 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 Yes. Because just take lighting control. You think, oh, light, simple. No, it connects. There's a lighting system. There's lighting controls software. There's power issues. There's integration with other building systems, right? There's shutdowns on emergency. There's shutdowns, partial load. You know, there's so many interactions that... Even something as simple as turn the light on is actually cross-discipline. Oh, how about this? Irrigation water metering. And lighting? (laughs) No, but in our meeting to resolve this, to be able to just to get that water flow data into the BMS, because that's part of the campus standards, we had over 10 people in two hour and a half meetings. So wow. three hours of meetings, 10 people, 30 wow. like consultant hours. How much is that? What? Wow. wow. Right. And so it's civil engineer, right? Because they're locating the meter. They didn't even specify the meter. So we got my very background because, you know, that helped. But our controls contractor, 
was like, okay, yeah, we can work with this meter. Where are we going to put it? How are we going to wire it? Oh, who's going to wire it? Oh, we need power. So let's bring in the electrician. Oh, it's part of the irrigation system. That's landscaping. So let's bring in the landscape architect. Oh, who controls the budgets for the landscape architect and the civil engineer? That's the architect. Okay. But who's going to install it? We're in charge. We're DPR. We're the general contractor, right? So, and then our mechanical subcontractor, because the controls is under the mechanical subcontractor. And I'm sure there's somebody I forgot. So, you know, there's a lot of people. In your role right now, you're an interface manager as well, right? (laughs) You know, that's a nice way to put it. That's actually probably one of the nicer things people have called me. But yeah. (laughs) Well, really, it comes down, it's air traffic control of uh, signals and data. Like, what Air do you traffic do with control, how about chaos coordinator? Chaos, I love that. That's exactly what it is. Chaos. But, you know, one of the other terms that I joke about, but really, I think there's some serious behind it, is I'm a superintendent of the invisible. <laughs> yeah, what you don't see. <laughs> I mean, yeah, electrons, airflow. Water flow through pipes, that's all behind the walls, but then all the data, all the data going everywhere all at once, including uh, hot dog fingers, you know. I do want to talk about data because we have in my practice, I'm working at the moment, we're in a big discussion with clients about data, who owns it, who runs it. But no, I just want to... So good. Drill down the uh, lighting control rabbit hole that we're we're in, right? So what are the current standards for lighting control? Like, I'm new. I might want to specify lighting control commissioning. What standards am I quoting? So for lighting controls commissioning, that's LP8. ANSI, IES, LP8. It's the standard for lighting control system commissioning. I chair that committee for the IES. And we're currently hot and heavy. Actually, we're wrapping up our standard. We're in the internal review process before it's going to be issued for public review. So that will cover commissioning and IST for lighting control? Yes. Nice. Right. You will have to come back. And the standard, the old standard is, is DG29. Actually, James and I presented on that at a building commissioning association conference 10 years ago. Right. And it's a great standard. Actually, it's the only standard that I know of that talks about how to write an OPR for lighting controls, but how to write an OPR in general. I mean, the BCA has some excellent resources, but it's not an ANSI standard. I don't know that ASHRAE has an ANSI standard for writing an OPR. I don't think so. It's sort of nodded to an ASHRAE guideline, but it's not really laid out. Right. So LP8 does. LP8 is an amazing document and it's actually going to be even more amazing. We have a great committee. Actually, James is on that committee. I handpicked him to be part of that. <laughs> he, he, well he wrote an entire new section on uh, ongoing commissioning, nice. existing building commissioning for lighting and lighting controls. Because remember, this standard covers lighting and lighting controls. You can't do one without the other. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting. I'm on the ASHRAE committee working on the ongoing commissioning standard 1.7, the new one that's yes. in production. I've got to revisit Ooh, the lighting can control you send section me in of advance? that. Can you send me an advanced copy so that I can make sure our standard agrees with that? Because I've been reading, what is it, 232, 223? Actually, and I talked with Tracy Jumper. I was like, Tracy, what is your advice for this? I tried to get her to review that section, but she's like, I'm just too busy. So here's the advice I'll give you. I mean, for her to be generous with her time to give me advice so that I can review it, I'm so thankful for that. Look, we're in the very early stages with the ongoing commission thing. It's a bit chaotic. Okay. But once that gets to a point, I'll try and get you on a review list there because, you know, things... Just don't rope me into the committee. 
No, no, I know. <laughs> Thank you. Believe me, I understand that sentiment more than you realize. <laughs> when you get into the vortex of volunteer work on committees and writing standards, and it's it's almost impossible to get out. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, I will say that there are two other standards that people should look at before they jump into full-on lighting controls commissioning. One is LP6. That is the IES, ANSI slash IES standard for lighting controls. That too, I'm on that committee. I'm not, I don't chair that committee. I'm just part of it. And we're doing some big updates for that. But right. it's a great, great standard, really good bones. The second one is LP16. That is the breakout standard that was released last year for sequences of operation for lighting control systems. Perfect. Nothing. Now, it is not guideline 36, okay? Just don't expect that going in. There are recommended sequences, but remember, lighting control professionals and lighting designers and electrical engineers do not have this broad history of writing sequences and controls. Yeah. HVAC, it's been over 40 years, right? Yeah. Maybe 50. Lighting controls, it's only been maybe 10 years. Right. You know, but from when we've had like full on digital controls, right? So, and really, I don't want to call them controls. They're really control systems now, right? Because 15 years ago, they were still analog controls. I mean, almost the equivalent of pneumatic. I mean, they were interchangeable, but they were all line voltage controls. Now they're digital. So big, big deal. And with that, now you can have networked systems, right? And you have proprietary protocols. There still isn't a standard protocol for lighting control systems. Yeah, I mean, it's some fun debates. I'm staying out of it. So LP16, super important. And it teaches, it not only provides standard sequences, but it teaches lighting designers, electrical engineers, how to write sequences because they don't have that experience. I don't know of any ASHRAE standard that does that. But it also talks about the additional things that you need to have. You can't just have a sequence, right? You also need to have a network diagram because electrical contractors, when they're looking at the drawings to bid the project, they're going to look at the diagrams because that's going to be their information. They're not going to read through the sequence and say, oh, look, there's a time clock sequence. That means that I need a central time clock and thus networked control. That networking is a huge driver of cost in a project because those lighting control systems aren't networked by default. HVAC control systems are, but lighting control systems are not. But it also helps to show the interfaces with other systems like demand response servers or HVAC control systems, right? And it even helps you show, hey, where am I going to locate this head end? How many designs or mechanical control systems do they say locate the BMS computer in the basement? Nobody says that, right? It might as well be the basement of the Alamo. I mean, to use the Herman <laughs> example. I mean, right? I mean, come on. So a network diagram is super important. And then you need details, right? So have you ever gone into a conference room and played button roulette? Oh, you have a, a keypad on the wall right. and you're just pressing a bunch of buttons till you get something that you're not dissatisfied with, right? Yep. So those kind of details for scene controls, super important. So this standard actually 
puts that as a standard practice. You need a detail. You need to label your scenes, right? Because the contractor always say, oh, yeah, you could, you know, they come blank, but you can engrave them later. Well, what happens? They never get engraved. So it's even a worse game of button roulette because you have four blank buttons that you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. This lighting (laughs) is awful. Like this conference room. I mean, I'm horribly lit right now. (laughs) Button roulette. It was worth interviewing you just to get that. <laughs> you, I, oh, I got a billion of those. Hotel yeah. I go to. I'm a five star princess, right? So I check into my hotel, and there's normally a pad of some sort. And to get the lights working is like I've got two degrees, and I'm sitting there for like 20 minutes. I bang, bang, bang. Is this working? Then you can't turn them all off at night. Yes. And I'm paying yeah. for this. Yeah. I'm paying a premium for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lynn, you said something that's really important in the world of indoor environmental quality, and that was. It's what you not dissatisfied with. <laughs> so many people think that IEQ and lighting, I'd like to, if we have time, talk about lighting within the term indoor environmental quality, think it's about designing for what people want. But really when it comes down, it's designed for what people don't want. Yeah, I'd say so, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that goes back to the importance of the OPR, right? Reviewing yes. the BOD. Yeah. That's, that's where it all comes from. I've had many, many debates with design professionals talking about, well, this is what they're going to want. This is how we should design it, blah, blah, blah. And, it's, and I said, no, people rarely talk about when they're happy. What they talk about is when they're pissed. And so what you want to do is you want to unpiss them. <laughs> and that's, Anger drives engagement, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, right? It's all about designing for when they're, you want to remove the complaints. Yes. Not yeah. designed for the satisfactions. Well, well and I'd say the designs also need to be flexible enough to design for possibilities, but not in a way that increases cost. Mm. This is cost. Just, I would say that's <laughs> almost an impossible task. But this is the uh, art part the of our business. In understanding lighting control systems, because so much of your lighting control system capabilities and performance is baked into what you choose for for HVAC control systems. I mean, I would say that some would argue that they're all the same, but I'll tell you what, being down in the trenches, they are not the same. No, they do not have the same programming interfaces. They don't have the same capabilities. They don't have the same level of programmers. They don't have the same level of support after the fact, but the same is for lighting control systems as well. I mean, there are control systems that are only local control systems. There's standalone control systems that are only in the fixtures. There's there's control systems that are owned by private equity firms. And all they're looking to do is sell. No, I'm not kidding. This is what happened with Incellium. Incellium got shopped around. It was a great product. It got shopped around and bought around until it was held by a private equity firm. And then they got bought. And what happened in that transition when they were going out, right? Private equity firms, they're there to make money. Lighting control systems and control systems for building in general, those are infrastructure level project capital expenditures that have to last for 20 years. When those systems get bought, support goes away. It's happened over and over and over again. Adura. Incellium. Oh, gosh. I've written a bunch of blogs about it. Douglas Controls, right? And, you know, good luck. Good luck finding parts. Maybe, like, Adura was hosted in the cloud, right? Right. Mm -hmm. There are stories about they got bought by Acuity. They turned off the servers. They got bought by Acuity on a Friday. They turned off the servers on a Saturday. They came in on Monday. Why don't my lights work? 
That's amazing. So was that almost That's real? That really happened. I mean, so DPR had work? that system in our one of our corporate offices. We knew it was coming because we were an early adopter. We worked with the vendor to locally host our lighting control system. Like we made our own servers and but we can't maintain it. We can just kind of limp it along, but we can't maintain it because there's no parts. Yeah. And that's actually what happened on one of my projects. And Celium was selected because it was low cost. Now remember, HVAC control systems are routinely so sole sourced. Nobody questions that. Yeah. Lighting control systems? No. It's still it's stuck in the 90s and there's or equals. And they are not or equals. Right. Yeah. We just established that, but they're specified as if they are. So you get a low cost supplier that may or not work for that project. So my project, it got selected. We went through internal submittal reviews to make sure it was good and we could publish it outside for prime time. We did. It got reviewed and accepted by the owner. And then in December, we went to try to buy our electrical subcontractor, went and tried to buy parts. They couldn't find parts anywhere because the private equity firm, when it went out for sale, said, all right, we are not going to manufacture any more products. We're going to conserve cash you know, so that we can make the most from this purchase. You've hit on a real sensitive spot for me. That stuff just drives me up the wall. And I got to a place in my career where we had a sales team hounding our office to specify a specific boiler. It was a Canadian-made product. It was locally made out not too far from us here. And I refused to spec it, not because it wasn't an excellent product. It's because the owner of the business was a sole ownership. He was approaching retirement and he had no transition plan. Yes. And I knew him and I said, listen, Bruce, I love your product, but there's no freaking way I'm going to specify it because my clients have a building that's going to last forever. It's going to last as long as my career and my life is. And I don't want to be responsible for you going out of business and not being able to provide parts. And I said, as soon as you come up with a this transition, is Canada. you have to that? have heating. This is Canada. You have to have heating. Exactly. Right. right. There's no <laughs> option. So when he came and good on him, he came back about a year and a half later. He says, I've got a transition plan. We have sold part of our shares to our engineers in the company. Plus we partnered with a European manufacturer for our heat exchangers. And okay. there is in fact a transition plan in place. And I said, okay, fine. Now I will specify your product. So for the manufacturers and the venture capitalists and all those people that are listening to this program, and hopefully they listen to it, this is one of the things that pisses engineers off because we have a relationship with our clients. And when we specify your product and then you vaporize, that's not cool. Well, and what happens is me as the MEP coordinator, like you never get let go. So one of my projects, it's been two years since occupancy. I'm still having them out. Yeah, yeah. We could do a whole show on that whole subject matter. Yeah. And I would lose it. I, I would lose my <laughs> shirt on that. We many- could definitely do some angertainment. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> but think about this. How many people understand the risk profile of what you just said? Very few people understand right. that risk exists, let alone how to manage it, right? Well, and I would say to me, part of the reality of the design community now don't really allow it. And that's really sad. You're not allowed to spend time on that. You know, you're in a drawing factory, you know, and you're just cranking out designs. You don't have time. There's no budget to go out in the field anymore. 
Nah. And the engineers doing the design, they're not managing the clients. That's the partners. You know, it's unfortunate. I don't know how to solve it other than give them more budget. But, you know, I, I can <laughs> no, tell you ain't how. Nobody, ain't nobody wants to pay for that. <laughs> how I advise clients to do with these things is keep it as simple as possible. Gosh, Less BMS points. Please, please. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jay Inc. used to teach a class at the Pacific Energy Center on controls. Yeah. And I was reading his intro slide and it said how not to design a control system. And the first one was make it super complicated. Yeah. Make it so that nobody understands it. And a whole bunch of other things that honestly for HVAC controls, that's what I see right now. Oh, yeah. It's like a cowbell, right? Oh, God. And I will say that we saw that in LP16, we purposely made it very approachable, lots of examples, but also lots of tools so that folks could go out and create their own sequences. We're not telling them the right sequences, right? But we're telling them, hey, here's an example, but hey, if you want to create your own, here's what you do, you know, and make sure that you have all these things. And also make sure to get it reviewed by a knowledgeable commissioning provider. Always having that third-party perspective is incredibly powerful. Yeah. One of the things I learned to do, and unfortunately later on in my career, was actually stop customizing control systems and look for a vendor, possibly two, and just standard catalog items and say, okay, we're going to work with what exists and we'll find a way to design our systems around your controls rather than build systems and then customize the control solution. That never worked. Absolutely. Yeah. Shoehorning it in. I mean, honestly, I feel like the other way to do it is just ego-driven. And I do see a lot of ego-driven designs. Yeah. It's just really sad, you know? And you know what? I will say when I was a five, six-year engineer, there was some definitely some ego in there. I'm really thankful that with time and age and hard knocks i've become a little bit more humble i I will say my ego like i i gotta be fully honest i mean there is an ego in here and you know the good part of the ego is it drives you always to be better yeah right but the bad part is when you just block out learning from your mistakes learning from others not seeking input from others that's the really hard part yeah well that's what maturity comes is recognizing when to put your ego aside and well, again, going back, like think just thinking of the designs and the ones that haunt me are the ones where we had challenges like design problems. And then you used your creativity to solve them, but the creativity became the curse, you know, and yeah. you had to go. Okay, just tell, because tell, you can oh, engineering. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, let's just go back to fundamentals and then recognizing that real people have to make this stuff work. We can design just about anything, right? There's engineering. Yeah. That's one of the great things about engineering. You, there's no limit to what we can design and make work. But my God, at the end of the day, yeah, likely somebody who doesn't have an those, engineering degree those is going to have to facility engineers it. are the salt of the earth. Yeah. And I love them. You know, they're cantankerous and cynical, but you know why? Yeah, because they're trying to make stuff work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yep. We got some real sort of good one liners here. We got the button bullet, unpissed people, and now too much cowbell in control. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, too much cowbells, right? The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload, and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. 
go paperless, increase efficiency, and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners, adapting to your workflows and processes, and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows. And Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. And now, back to the show. One thing I do want to get on here, and this is a great segue now. In the practice where I'm at the moment, we're having this big discussion. We have a smart building section. Doesn't everybody? It's trendy, right? But the question is, my challenge to them is, because I'm not supposed to be CTO. I'm supposed to be like the grown up in a room, which is always dangerous when someone calls me that. But my question is data, right? Who owns it? Who controls it? Now, this is my personal view here. And I want to see if you agree with this, right? Take Tesla as an analog, right? I actually think there will be such an argument about who owns and controls this data that what will happen is yes. a big development firm like, I don't know, in the UK, British Sands, one of the biggest developers, right? Or EMAR in Dubai, right? They have buildings all over the place. They will become a cloud business and they will control and own all the data on their buildings. And this is why. Let's say we implement a smart building, right? And it's super smart. And the problem with that is someone can hack in and go, oh, the CEO has this meeting with this dude on a Monday, this person yeah. on a Tuesday, and you put all that together, and then you've got industrial espionage on a scale that's 100%. And lighting controls, I mean, you know, you can't, most of the time you can't work without light, right? Yeah, so you, you know something's so, going on, right? <laughs> yes, yes. The occupancy sensors are on 18 hours a day. Wow, they're getting ready to push out a big project or product, I got to buy. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Now, you know, at Lightfair is a big lighting trade show in New York. It's had its ups and downs over the years. But five years ago, there was a vendor that was, their model was, hey, we'll give you a free lighting control system, but we own your data. I see. Now, the Belimo, they should do that. I haven't seen them again. So, yeah, but you're exactly right. But not only that, hey, with all of these systems being connected to the internet, and I know of two buildings that has had this happen, the hackers broke in, wiped out their whole control system. Yeah. They encrypted the BMS computer that was run in the building. They had to start it all over. They lost all their historical data. But hey, I'm seeing products to say, hey, connect your switch gear to the internet so you can control it remotely. So not just holding your data hostage, but how about holding all the power for your building hostage? You can That is bad. That is really bad. But I see the manufacturers, they just, and there is one manufacturer who has been mentioned here that doesn't see cybersecurity as their problem. They think it is just as an IT problem. But they don't understand that the inherent architecture, protocols, all the stuff that's baked into their controls, not just control system, but controls, yeah. it's a fundamental part of the problem. If you have a malevolent actor get in there, they can map out who's who in the zoo and what they're doing and sell that data Absolutely. to you know, Absolutely. Microsoft to push in out a secret project. That can be found yep. out by analyzing movements through a building, right? Absolutely, 100%. So, 
my theory is this, it will go two ways. There'll be a bifurcation. The big developers will become even bigger and they will own their cloud. And getting inside that will be like, you got to be James Bond, right? And then at the other end, the suburban standalone developers, they will go, Belima will go, hey, have all the dampers and controls for free, but we have all that information and run your building. Oh, oh no, there's already two lighting control companies that do that. Yeah. So that's yeah. where it's going. It's a bifurcation here, right? Yeah. But I used to do a lot of work with the core engineers before COVID and their answer to this was, no, our buildings are air-gapped. You can turn that network off. The only thing you'll have in that building is a local BMS and it will not be connected to anything other than that building. Mm-hmm. Why? Because but, it's a security issue. But remember, so yeah. think about like a high-rise though. You yeah. have a base building control system and the lease agreements generally say you have to use that base building control system. Yeah. But now you're connecting your tenant network to your base building network. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How are you going to air gap that? You don't yeah. control that base building network. So that was a problem that we had with an integrated lighting control and HVAC control system. They were on two different networks. <laughs> tenant network and landlord network. I've had that problem before. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And actually that same manufacturer said, oh yeah, you want to integrate? So you need zone level data. That's going to be, they called it a licensing fee. They wanted $60,000 for that licensing fee. Good. This is now, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a real example project I worked on four years ago. So my advice to all clients right now is take the cowbell down to zero. Passive systems where possible, or the most simple systems where possible. Radio, well, OS, absolutely. Yeah, but here's the thing: code is requiring command control and integration. At least here in California, you've got to have it for most spaces. And there's well. so many spaces now. The cost-effective solution is integrating it at the back end. Right. So now you can't integrate it locally. I would prefer to integrate it locally because that's very simple. But at the same time, like you have a giant open office with dozens and dozens of occupancy sensors. You know, can you really pick one occupancy sensor to integrate with the HVAC control system? No, you got to aggregate the signals from all of those occupancy yeah. sensors, do some logic, and then be able to send one output to the VAV box. So I agree, make it simple as possible. One-to-one integration at the hardware level, at the local zone level, I think is very cost-effective, Yeah. but it doesn't work all the time. And so then once you're integrating at the back end, you're going to do it all through the building, you know, because it doesn't make sense to pay for stuff twice. You just touched on another unintended consequence and another possible complication or is a complication, which is local legislation, right? So with good intentions... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> people legislate for, oh, this is good, do this, right? And then wow. it creates a vulnerability or a lack of resilience or just... Exactly. Well, and the design engineers, they don't, they also don't see cybersecurity as, as their responsibility. Uh, and so it does fall to me on all yeah. of my projects. That's who I've been interfacing with the client's IT side. I know enough to do it right when I'm brought on the project right at the very beginning and establish that relationship so that when we need that, well, one, we can create a secure architecture. Yeah. Right. And identify whether or not the project products do have vulnerabilities. I mean, I subscribe to the CISA alert newsletter and their RSS feed, and it sends me every day, every day, 
they identify an exploited vulnerability in a control system, wow. I'll tell you, there's some bad control systems out there. But having that background knowledge, that little trickle every day of, oh, guess whose control system has a vulnerability? Oh, you know what? It's been three months. I have not seen that that, that exploited vulnerability has been patched. I don't think I want to specify that control system on my project. But but I will say paying attention to it is really important. I think commissioning providers with their relationship with the owners can help with that. I'm really proud that, you know, it's been three years and this company that I did a building for or I was part of that project, they have pen testers, penetration testers. Their job is just to look for, you know, openings. They did not find anything both at our pro when we turned over our project, but also throughout the warranty period, I would come in the building, I'd check with those guys and they say, because they were all guys, but I would come in and check with those guys. Hey, you find anything on the control system? You know, here's the manufacturers. What does Shodan tell you? And they never found it. Nice. Oh, wow. I'm really excited. One of my that. badges of honor in my career was I retired as being the old guy who was stuck in the past and still used thermostatic radiator valves. <laughs> I'm good with now, that. Anyway. Now, think about this. I went up the high technology. I was one of the first adopters of wireless controls, integrated systems. We were around when Johnson launched their Metasys control systems. And like we went up that. And I got to tell you, man, it just created a whole bunch of headaches for us as being the early adopters. And at one point, I said, that's it. We're done. Yeah. Thermostatic radiator valves yeah. have springs and it works on, on <laughs> phase change materials. And they know how to maintain it. it exactly, right? And no yeah. one's going to hack into a thermostatic radiator valve, right? <laughs> if you want more heat, you turn it to the right. If you want oh less, gosh. you turn it to the keep left. It, keep it off the internet. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. So, I'll tell you what, man. This data thing, and also there's value in that data, right? So what would it be like to be a design team and you could go to one of the big developers and they'll say, right, do you want to know you're designing student accommodation? Do you want to know when they all have showers and when they all eat? I can tell you that based on the data I have here. And you can design yeah. and right size systems. That's got value, yeah. right? That's another yeah. potential monetization route for the people who own the data, right? Yeah. Well, you know, the two manufacturers that are doing that, they're like, hey, if you want visibility down to the zone, that's an extra fee. Oh, yeah. you want a heat map to show you your underused, underutilized spaces? Yeah. For that project that I finished two years ago, that manufacturer, that distributor wanted $65,000 for that platform. Did they buy? Did they sell it? No. No. My owner was like, what? I'm not going to spend $65,000 for that. Yeah, no, that would offend me as a client. I got so. Oh, I was. Yeah, it offended was, me. Yeah. <laughs> I was pissed for my client. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. 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 So, one thing I do want to talk about with you is, yeah, we've covered like lane control. I want to talk you into writing a how-to lighting control book, but that's another chat show. We'll come back to that, put a pin in that. Because I believe in codes and standards, but serving on them things is an exercise in self-flagellation. And what the industry needs is how-tos. So LP8 actually does have how-tos. This is an IES standard, Illuminating Engineering Society. This is a very practical standard. When we start our standard process, we write something called a PIF. And it's basically your mission statement. What right. do you want it to be? And, you know, it's your guiding life for that. And one of the things we said is we want this to be practical boots on the ground. And thankfully, the IES standards, they have that track record yeah. of having usable, implementable standards, something that you could pick up. And that's almost as yeah. good as the third edition of the building commissioning 
handbook, right? The one written by Carl Stumm and Diana Bjornskov. Man, that is like, oh, that should be anybody who wants to do commissioning. That should be your first buy. It's an amazing, amazing book. The third edition. So awesome. Go to the Building Commissioning Association and buy it. Don't buy it off of Amazon because they're not a licensed reseller. Go to the Building Commissioning Association and buy it. It's a great standard. But we wanted, in that tradition, we wanted LP8 to be just as implementable. So we have example commissioning specifications. We have example functional performance tests. We have example design review comments and actually instructions for how to make a design review comments. And we have design review checklists. I mean, they're not going to catch everything. No, but but it's the time and experience, right? right, You're going to be able to build your own checklist as well. One of the things I want to hit on this interview is my personal view is there's going to be a lot more women in engineering in the future because there's a lot more women going into engineering at university, right? So demographically, that has to follow through. But at the moment, let's be straight, women in engineering, particularly in senior roles, is not a majority, let's say. Right? <laughs> 15% if you're lucky. Yeah. yeah. So what's that like as someone who's living that right now? You mean, what's it like being a unicorn? Yeah. I'll tell <laughs> <Yeah>. you that. <laughs> Actually, so Society of Women Engineers did, has done a lot of studies about recruiting and retaining women in engineering. One of the studies that I remember showed, you know, the number of women, let's let me do it this way because this is on the screen, the number of women that are in the industry with cumulative years of experience. And it keeps increasing until it gets to year 10. And then it just drops. Because we're like 10 years, I'm not going to put up with this BS. I can use my talents to go do something else. And if you can, why not? You know, it's not easy. Being a woman in engineering, I mean, I don't look like the stereotype, right? right? When I walk into a room, I have been asked to get coffee before. So madmen, right? <laughs> I'm not sure how I would handle that. Well, I will say that for that person, I said, do you want cream and sugar? And he said, no, black's fine. I came in, I gave him the coffee. I ran the meeting. <laughs> and then, but no, get this. So the important part of this story, though, is I love it. <laughs> after that meeting, he apologized. He but, made I'm sorry. And you know what? I have so much more respect for him because he did the hard thing and he apologized. Yeah. yeah. And there are a lot of good guys out there that maybe don't understand their blind spots. You know, when you're swimming through your life with privilege because you meet the stereotype and what you say is automatically taken seriously and people are acting on that. Because you're like, oh, yeah, maybe you don't really realize it. But, oh, yeah, he kind of looks and sounds like all the other other engineers. So, yeah, he must be qualified. Uh, But I come in, I don't meet the stereotype. mm -hmm. So you're automatically like, is she really an engineer or just playing one on TV? (laughs) (laughs) The Ali McBeal of engineers. I mean, so I'm really happy that over a 20-year career, I've gotten to a place where I know I'm qualified and those kind of things don't bother me. But that's not the case for the younger engineers because they don't have that time and perspective. They haven't been put through super challenging projects and come out the other side and have a bunch of those because, you know... You don't get those kind of like words to your face very often. You know, you don't have please get me coffee moments every day. There's really small things. And it can be as small as, you know, for me going to a work boot store and seeing three quarters of the shelves men's stuff 
and a quarter of the shelves women stuff. And I don't even have, you know, as good of a selection. And a lot, like two thirds of them are pink. I don't want pink construction boots. I just want construction boots <laughs> that fit. Yeah. For yeah. My- Bobby, right? <laughs> so you see like that little section and that's like, that's not me. Yeah. That's a very subtle message that you don't belong because they're not making things for you. Yeah. You know, just the other day, Tracy Jumper posted a thing about that Xena Workwear is now making women's safety vests. Saw that. That was great. great. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But like, how long has this been? You know, bulky, unsafe. And yeah. I absolutely agree. I've had unsafe vests. That's another message that you don't belong. Yeah. Yeah, right? still... And so how many of those small little messages are you going to get that you don't belong before it affects your confidence? Or you just say, screw this. I don't need to put up with this. And you go do something else yeah. where you are you, automatically accepted. You told a story that I read where you were in university and you were in a class and you noticed that, oh, it was all men and yourself. And then you looked across and there was one other woman there. And you said, what is she doing here. Yes. And, and then I said, what am I doing here? Right. Oh my yeah. God. That was awful. Yeah. That was awful. Like for me to like externalize, what is she doing here? All of those internal messages I've been getting and then to turn it around and not say, hang on, those messages are wrong. But my first response is, wait, what am I doing here? Like, how awful is that? Yeah, right. But you have to know that you do, you receive those messages and you internalize them. Does it fuel you a little bit? Like when people tell me no or tell me go away, it makes me more aggressive and want to come in. You know? Yeah, I get to say the F you and I'm going to yeah. do it anyway. Oh, totally. But yeah, at the yeah. same time, it kind of makes you a little combative and not everybody wants to see that. Because everything's a battle, right? they want That's you to be nice. Yeah. There is a very big, ex- I got, called the other day this is like the third time in my career i got called abrasive it is a very abrasive because i held a subcontractor to their their commitment yeah and i was very direct about it but would you call a dude abrasive no what he meant was you're abrasive for a a woman right exactly and i would have called him he was pouting <laughs> I always like Margaret. So, Lynn, you have to understand again. So, I am the type of individual that we had an individual who was a huge narcissist uh, come <laughs> to our office. And unfortunately, we reported to him <laughs> when I had sold my company, and this was the senior executive, and I just did not get along with the guy. He was on a good day, maybe five foot four. Like, he was Napoleon. He was, or, you know, and. And anytime he would come to the office, of course, he would sit at the head chair at this long boardroom table. Well, yeah, I lowered the chair. I'm my tea right now. This is so juicy. <laughs> I lowered his chair before he got to the meeting so that when he sat down, his chin hit the table. <laughs> so, like, I have zero tolerance for that. Like, if someone has to be abrasive, it's because you're pouting and you're being an asshole and like, you know, like reel it in. Like, this is the real world. Like, these are adults here. Stop behaving. But remember, like you can only control yourself. Yeah. Right? Well, so I've been on the receiving end of that. And, you know, I'm just like, yeah, I screwed up. You know, yeah, let me get it to you. But see, yeah, that's to me. That's my integrity. I made a commitment. Yes, I'm late. I'm very sorry. I mean, how many? Here's another one for you. I'm not an eight and skate kind of person. I don't work just eight hours and skate out the door, you know, 5 p.m. That's another good line you've given me. 
Eight and skate. Eight and skate. You know, I owed that to the tradies, the the guys out in the field. They're like, yeah, that dude, he's an eight and skate, you know. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I'm seeing it with some of our engineers and, you know, stuff doesn't get done. And so their commitments get dropped, you know, and I just can't do that. My integrity won't let me do that. You know, if I've made a commitment to you, hey, I'm going to do this. I mean, I made a commitment to you to be on this podcast today. And by God, I kicked the person out in our in the <laughs> conference room that was taking too long so that I could be here. You yeah. know, and if I really needed to, I probably would have done it for my car. Yeah. That's perfect. I can skate. I love that. But you have what you have a little, that the young graduates don't have is that you have experience, you have a reputation and you have confidence and you're able to do all that stuff. That comes by just you have to get the bruises, the, the knocks. Yeah. You've got to be able yeah. to go through the trenches. But when yeah. you get to that place in your career, wisdom and <laughs> wisdom comes into play. And for sure. Yeah. But you know, I will say that my confidence is always being tested. And you know why? Because mm. I'm always doing something new and I'm always learning more. Yeah. And maybe yeah, it's not great. technical, you know. And because I'm always learning something new, my confidence is always being tested. I love that. I'll say to you what I say to a lot of uh, sort of like junior leaders I coach. You do not need any more technical qualifications or certificates. You're set. The difference between your success and failure going forward is your soft skills ability, your ability to navigate, right? That's it. Yeah, and it's the hardest to learn. And it's the hardest to learn because it involves getting punched in the face occasionally, metaphorically. (laughs) (laughs) And smiling afterwards. I definitely agree with that, yeah. I'll tell you, man, Margaret Thatcher, the first female Prime Minister of the UK, she was a beast. There was a... Very famous news conference, and this guy asked her a passive-aggressive question, which basically said, oh, you're just a prime minister because you're a woman. She went, no, it's because I'm better than these guys. And next question. That was it. She did not. Sorry, you're going to break that. That's all right. You're allowed to swear here. She did not take any shit. She was there because she knew, and she made sure she was better than them. Yeah. Well, and I will say, I meet a lot of dudes with fragile male ego syndrome. Yeah. So... Unfortunately, um, if I showed that I was better than them every day, their fragile male ego syndrome would kick in and I wouldn't be able to get anything done. No, you don't have to rub their nose in it. Just occasionally you need a public execution now and again, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and I do that too. I love that. Greta Thunberg called it that small dick energy. (laughs) Yes, Greta Thunberg, she can give a sick burn. Yes, S-T-E... For sure. Yeah, and it that, was, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was totally. It was so yeah. on point. I that maybe called it like it is. Yeah. So listen, we, we got to wrap up now, but we normally finish with a rapid fire question. Do you want to go first or shall I? Yeah, no, I... Oh, Lord. <laughs> right, it's not a test. There's no marks. <laughs> so oh, no, but people will judge me for it. So let's do it. So what I are, mean, come on, bring it on. One of the things, you know, Adam, and you and I have talked about this before, and it has to do with modeling other people. And Lynn, obviously, you've had mentors in your life that you've modeled. You see what they do, how they do it. And if they can do it, you can do it. Let's just say you're at the next meeting and you're addressing a classroom full of women, future engineers, and your subject is on modeling those that are successful. What's your message? What do you tell them? Be authentic. Yeah. Great. Never cover up who you are and never be ashamed of who you are. Yeah, that's great. I've got a quick fire question, but I just want to say yourself and Tracy and people like you are really important 
Because you're Shit, out you're there. You're me to Tracy. Thank you. Yeah, but you're out there. That's a huge compliment. And it's deserved because you're <laughs> out there showing people what's possible, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, more power to you. So what would your advice be you're in your, into your career now, right? You're in that phase of like beating up dudes and soft skills, right? <laughs> so what, advice would your, what would your advice be to a 24-year-old, 22-year-old young graduate woman coming into the business? Put in the work. And I would also say find role models, but also look at negative role models. Yes. Look at those people you don't want to be like, yeah. right? That's, all, that's and, really and, good advice, yes. Right? Figure out what you don't want to be like. And then the third is seek validation for you, for you as a person. Because, you know, if you fit in and you look like everybody else, there's that validation, right? But if you don't look like everybody else, you're going to have to find your tribe, those folks who will reinforce who you are right here. Yeah. And that's key to staying in the industry. Yeah, that's, that's great answers. Like be authentic and like be good, right? Be so awesome they can't ignore you. Who said that? That was a great line though. Whoever said that, I can't remember that. Yeah, they wrote a book about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is just so, who doesn't get fired? Yeah, it's a little brutal. It's, it's a little brutal. brutal. But life's brutal, right? Nature's brutal. But I mean, I've given myself an ulcer. Was it worth it? No. You can't make your identity your career. I no. mean, I, you know, I grew up in the 80s where I watched guys get laid off from companies that they'd worked for for 20 years and their identity was gone and they killed themselves. Wow. They didn't know who they were anymore. I mean, it's a horrible, sad story. Actually, I still see it today. There was an electrician who got laid off a job. God, I loved him. He would say, I'm sorry, this is not a quick take, but he would tell his apprentices, he's like, you know, if you don't know what to do, here's a rock. So go take that rock and look at that rock and ask the rock, what should I be doing? Don't huh? come ask me. You take that rock out of your pocket. You ask the rock. You know, it, it, taught, them, it taught them to be self-starters, independent, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. but we lost a gem of a person. And all that experience. didn't know who his identity was. Mm. Yeah. That's horrible. Horrible. Yeah, that's a good point there, actually. Like, yeah. making your work life, your whole identity you got to be awesome because the awesome people don't get fired, right? But there's more to life than oh, what? Oh, no, awesome people get fired. <laughs> they do. They do, yeah. I mean, if you're run by an egomaniac, you know, if your company's run by an egomaniac company and you challenge that egomaniac and they don't like being challenged, they're going to get rid of you. Yeah. yeah Ask me how I know. <laughs> I know that. I got fired for insubordination. But I had a check in my pocket also. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the bounce back that matters, right? You're going to have setbacks. Absolutely. The bounce back. You're, oh, you're always going to fail. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's probably the other advice. Okay, yeah. so I grew up in a time where the unsaid message was, if you get pregnant, that's it. Your life is over. This is high school. If you get pregnant in high school, that's it. Your life is over. You're done. Don't get pregnant, right? And it sent the message that if you make a mistake, that's something you can't recover from. Yeah. At all. And gosh, how many mistakes? How many mistakes have I made? Oh my gosh. We don't have time for it on this. And <laughs> and I'm sure you'd say the same same things, right? Oh yeah. It, sure. it is in the bounce back. It yeah. is what you do with it, how you move on. Yeah, absolutely right. That's a great way to wrap up. I mean, you take the bread out of the bag, you see it's moldy. What do you do? You pick off the moldy parts and then you make your sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you are gonna have setbacks. You've got to just pick yourself up and carry on, right? Absolutely. It's yeah. just not realistic to think life's just going to be this straight line up and to the right. It doesn't happen. Oh, That's a good reality check, right? You can yeah. have had several failures and you just come back and they were learning experiences. Absolutely. And, and you learn from those failures, yeah. right? Big time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's yeah. a good way to wrap up. 
So then, you are more important than you give yourself credit for. I want you to know that. <laughs> you are hilarious. No, no, that's uh, true. I, don't I am know. going to say I disagree. Everybody is replaceable. Uh, I think you're uh, a lot more valuable than you realize. And you are an important person in this industry more than you realize as well, in my opinion. Let, Thank that's you. That's it there. Yes. My subcontractors just call me a bitch. So... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they keep me humble. Absolutely. You know? I'm just yeah. managing you. <laughs> anyway, thank you for coming on. That was a great. Yeah, Lynn, thank you. Yeah. My pleasure. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you passionate about the built environment? Do you want to learn from the industry's most inspiring, intelligent, and accomplished professionals? Then the companion to this podcast, Wisdom of the Property Crowd, is just the book for you. From Edifice Complex podcast interviews, this book distills the critical thinking, insight, and ideas of some of the property industry's most accomplished and respected practitioners. Each chapter is a synopsis of an hour-plus interview, capturing the takeaways and insights, including diagrams and images, to help explain concepts and ideas. There's also a brief bio about the interviewee and a QR code linked to the podcast episode for those that want to explore further. These are the mentors you wish you had in college. Wisdom of the Property Crowd by Adam Muggleton. Available on Amazon worldwide. And now, back to the show. Adam, before we get into our review, I want to push this. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason for that is that Lynn is one of those people that has a ton of wisdom. Yeah. And that's what your book was about, Wisdom of the Property Crowd. And again, you had a chance to take some of the interviews that we've done and put it in a book. And we are really fortunate. I know I keep saying it, and I'll keep saying it for, you know, as long as we keep doing this. But when we get people like Lynn on a show and she talks about what she's gone through, what she's learned, what she continues to learn, yeah. she made a great statement in terms of testing her confidence. It goes back to those four stages of learning again, you know, that she's always learning new stuff. So her confidence is always being tested. Yeah. That's a huge asset for those that are listening. Are, you know, again, the students, even those that are going through changes in your careers, testing your knowledge, and which tests your confidence. And that just actually keeps building strength. Yeah. And the other thing is that the takeaway is that sometimes it's not going to go your way and you're going to come out a bit battered and bruised metaphorically, right? But that's the learning part of it as well, right? You're learning what yeah. works and doesn't work, how to handle people, not handle people, how to move yeah. through a situation, right? Life isn't all roses and rainbows and unicorns, no. <laughs> particularly in our business. So that is part of it. It's not all happy clappy, but I think, I mean, Lynn's very modest. I think she doesn't understand how important people like her and Tracy Jumper are. They, they are real examples for people, particularly young women in STEM and in our business in particular, about yeah. what's possible. You know, Tracy's just got a big job. Lynn's doing a big job. These are, they're having big careers, they're having successful careers, and they're actually making a difference. And, and Lynn's working on like testing codes that are going to be there. You know, that's a legacy issue as well, right? She's putting legacy work out there and her intellectual input is in that code. And that's then being multiplied as a false multiplier through on other projects, right? There's so much going on there that is good. It's hard to pick one and talk about it. (laughs) Her character traits and her ethos, there's a huge message in there. And that is, is that when you become engaged in your field of practice, that means not just in terms of the technical requirements, but also the connections that you make, the mentors that you have, 
and the people that you work with on committees. And she mentioned a couple of names of people that she worked on, but they were picked because those people are competent. That becomes a, a basket weave of knowledge. It's, and being able to recognize your knowledge is just part of it. And in the grand scope of things, when you bring in other people or you get invited to participate, yeah. that you're building this basket weave and this just this great ball of knowledge. And she represents that, like being engaged and learning the stuff and developing those connections and contributing back into the process, the machine that she's part of. That's really huge. But she also made a statement which also resonated with me, which was, don't let your career define your identity or don't lose your identity in your career. That's really true because I've seen a lot of that because I'm I'm of a certain older age. And I've seen some of my peers who like their whole life and identity attached to their work. And when that business gets sold or they age out and retire, they are lost at that point. Yeah. Right. Cause their kids are grown up, wife's doing Zumba and other stuff that doesn't involve them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And all of a sudden they got all this free time. You really got to, there's a pillars to life, right? There's family life, there's work life, there's friend life. You've yeah. got to have that whole range, that spectrum, right? Right. Jeez. My dad made that mistake. He retired early with no hobbies. He just watched TV for the next 10 years, right? Yeah. It was yeah. not good. It was yeah. extremely unhealthy, you know? Yeah. So I learned from that. But yeah, whilst I love what I do, you know, there's a lot going on. But Lynn is a great example of what's possible. And she's contributing. And she's obviously aware not to make her whole life around her career. <laughs> I'm assuming from her statement that she has a pretty awesome private life as well, right? Well, she's passionate about it. Yeah. And passion... <laughs> When you can release your passion freely in the things that you love, that's an amazing place to be. It goes back to Maslow, you know? Yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of nature, absolutely. Yeah, you know, she's a great example of that. I touched on the statement about being able to describe what doesn't make you happy. And that is something that, you know, I've defended many, many times Yeah. to engineers and architects. Like focusing on what you think people want will deliver a certain product. But if you don't analyze what people don't want, then they will follow that design. They'll come out of the woodwork. It'll be noise related. It'll be lighting related. It'll be thermally yeah. related. You have to think about the things that people don't want. It is so important. There were so many things I wanted to talk about with her, but what she is also, I don't think she realizes, it might be a little bit of a stand-up comedian. Some of her like one-liners like the eight and skate, the button roulette. I've played button roulette. <laughs> that one is good. I, go to. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, button roulette. That is so true. I I remember being like, in, well, still happens, going into a conference room, and you're trying to get the lighting right. <laughs> so, and somewhere the lighting, you know, technician's not around. So you're there in front of the screen, and you're trying to get the right. And <laughs> it's it's totally roulette. I like um, to take on data management as well because this is the problem that's looming on the horizon for all buildings. The amount of data that can be produced and the management and ownership of that is going to become a key issue in the industry in the next 10, 15 years. How this could be resolved, I'm not quite sure, but you're not going to be able to ignore it soon. Yeah, you used the word industrial espionage as it related to that. And there's, yeah, there's a whole story there to be told in terms of building data. And that's the thing. Well, what, what generates that data? Well, it's the people inside the building. If there was no people inside the building, there'd be no data to collect other than yeah. you know the free run range of the building. But it's the movement of people, their habits, what they're doing when they arrive, what they're doing during the day, what they're doing when they're done, how the systems are being tested, monitored, managed, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, what you do with that, you're right. Let's think about this, right? If I was a Chinese spy and I wanted to know what was going on Raytheon, and if I said to them, 
Hey, yeah. would you like to know when the CEO gets there, who he meets with, what time he takes for shit, what time he has dinner, where he goes? Yeah, yeah. They go, yeah, I'll take that. And all they got to do is hack into the billing system and they get that. <laughs> yeah, that's not, uh, that's an unsettling thought. Yeah. When you think about just the level of detail that you can get from monitoring certain data that you make available in your building through your sensors, censoring systems. I don't know, it goes back again, like you can't get anything from the thermostatic radiator valve. I know it's old-fashioned, but you know what? The things work, and you can't tap into them and hack them up. Thermostatic rev valves is hands down one of the best control devices out there, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. I'll give the two thumbs up on that one. But a friend of mine, he's a senior VP for Palo Alto Networks who would do cybersecurity. He tells me, your car is an unencrypted hard drive so when you connect your phone to your car, first thing that phone, that car does is suck every bit of data out of your phone. When you sell wow. that car on, you and all your contacts and everywhere you've been and what you've done, every road you speed it down is in that car. It doesn't get wiped, ever. Wow, wow, he wow. says the buildings are an even bigger version of that. But he says their company is just waiting for the big light thing to blow up and they're going to dive in there and do cybersecurity on all the buildings. They are just waiting, sitting there yeah, and watching scary. this space. We've talked about something else that you mentioned on shows before, but I've got an acronym for it now, Fragile Male Ego Syndrome. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> Come on, guys. Like, grow up. You know, it's not a male-female thing going on. Park your egos and your sensitivities at the door. Like, just deal with realities like adults. Yeah. God, it's just... I. Both you and I have been around long enough that we've been in meetings or discussions where some individual is just out of line because of their ego. Like, yeah, I want to use a harsh expletive delete of their like, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, there's a lot of bad practice out there, but I think it's slowly aging out. And let's face it, if I'm a client, I don't care who you are, what you do. All I care about is you do a good job for me. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. I really don't. I just want a great job. Yeah. And that's where we got to get to everywhere, right? I was just, before we were ta- talking on the show, I was looking at my website in 2012. So 10 plus years ago, I talked about, well, I stayed in here. Like, and, and I just said, now you know why I've been preaching for decades, why we need to have more women in the HVAC industry. That was 2012. So I've been talking about already 10 years before that, 2002. Yeah, You know, so for 20 years now, I've been talking about why it's important women come into the industry because they bring to the table an element that it fits well on the construction team. These are complex problems on all levels, technical levels, management levels, financial levels, political levels, social levels, there's just so many levels. And without their abilities that they have, like their the inherent characteristics that come with with women and females, we're missing part of it. And so I can just encourage more women, if you're listening to this program and you're in a STEM program, you know, look at the industry. Like, I can't, like, again, we started out, like, there's no industry that can challenge you so in so many ways than in the engineering side. Yeah, there's it's, intellectual rigor, there's growth, there's personal growth. It's all here to be taken. It's all here. Yeah. Now, it's a journey. <laughs> there's no doubt about it. Sure it's that. not a walk in the park. Yeah. But to get into the places like the Tracy's of the world and the Lynn's of the world. And I mean, we have had many females on and we're going to have more. This year has been great, actually. We've got to chat, talk to a lot of, of people that, yeah, they just, they bring another element to the table. She said also something that was really important that I wrote down, be authentic. 
Yes. How many times have we been in meetings with people who are, you're not getting the real person? Yeah. You know, they're trying to put on some kind of facade. You're not, you just, you know, you're not getting the real deal. Yeah. So any baby boomers out there, which I'm one, let me just translate beyond all things. That means don't bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> don't be a bullshit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you see right through it. Yeah. You know, anybody that's that's been through the landmines and bruised and scraped and uh, damaged, you see through that shit a mile away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You think and that's why when it comes you're to, not, right? No, and that's why when it comes to narcissists, I have zero time. I don't, right. I, I yeah. do. I just, you can see through them a mile away. The bounce back, yeah. you talked about that. When you do make mistakes, you do fall down, but getting up again. You no, know, how you bounce back is, it's everything. It really is. It really is. That's yeah. what defines you as well. Because it's if everyone's good while it's going good, right? So when it ain't going good, that's where you find out who you are. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that was my, when I was first went to property development, someone says to me, look, Adam, any idiot can make money in property when it's booming. It's when it's not booming. That's where you find out who the real talent is. Yeah. So true. Because half the people yeah. you think are good go bust in the downturn, right? Yeah. <laughs> She's another term, control hallucinations. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ghost in the machine, I guess, is what she said there, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So anyways, we just we keep delivering this words of wisdom again for the parents that listen to the show, with the students who listen to the show. I can't tell you, when I was going to school, if there was a program like that we put it together here, I would be listening to it because, yeah, not absolutely. because of you and I, we, we're just, what are we? We're like the, we're like yesterday's the conveyor belt. Yesterday's. Yeah, we're just, we're not the ones, I mean, we have some wisdom, we share our wisdom, but yeah. the, you know, the individual we have on the show, like the wisdom they're sharing is invaluable and Lynn is like all the other ones in terms of, this is my journey. You know, yeah. I started here and this is where I'm at and I'm going to keep going, but here's what I've learned in that time. And, you know, maybe you'll find it useful in your own decision-making and what you're doing. So another great episode. Yeah, absolutely, man. So look, that was a good one. I shall see you on the next one. Thanks, Adam. Cheers, man. Take care. Bye. Yeah, bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.